It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's common knowledge that stress weakens our immune system. Reset are an amazing holistic, science-based supplement formulated to balance all three body systems that manage stress, nervous, endocrine, and immune. Reset takes a holistic approach to stress management and are vegan, GMO-free, caffeine-free, melatonin-free, and made in the USA. There are specific ingredients such as passionflower, chamomile, and valerian root that helps support a strong immune system. I've personally tried the 14-day reset trial and honestly, it worked wonders for me. I tried both their Calm product, which reduced any daytime nerves I had about meetings, and their Unwind product, which was perfect after a long day of writing and meeting deadlines. What's amazing about their product as well is that it's aesthetically pleasing and smells and tastes amazing. You can also head on over to their website, which is linked below, for their email program, where they teach easy tips to improve your stress response. For example, did you know that there was a science behind why petting a dog makes you feel more relaxed? If you would like to try Reset yourself, you can head to Target.com, which is running a special in the month of June 2020, or order them on Reset.com, that is R3SET.com with a 10% discount for my listeners, which will last until 2021. Just enter promo code MORBIDOLOGY. Take control of your stress today. Before we get on with today's episode of Morbidology, I'd like to take a second to talk about one of my favourite podcasts, Obscura, a true crime podcast. With atmospheric music and sound design, Obscura, a true crime podcast, shines a spotlight on the darker things in life by taking a narrative approach to covering real murders, mysteries, missing persons, and more. What do I mean by a narrative approach? Well, Obscura structures their episodes in such a way that they paint a narrative in your mind. With a heavy focus on victims and lesser-known cases, Each week, host Justin will take you on a deep dive into the dark side of history, mystery, and murder. Be warned, Obscura is not for the squeamish. Shocking crimes are covered in full detail and real court and 911 audio is used when possible. If you're a true crime fan with a taste for the hard stuff, then Obscura has you covered. Each month sees the release of Obscura Black Label. Black Label is reserved for only the darkest cases. And finally, if you're a listener that likes a binge, Obscura has a large library of episodes ready for you to download right now. 
You can find Obscura, a true crime podcast, on your podcast app of choice. Just search for Obscura True Crime and you cannot miss their logo. Welcome to Morbidology, the podcast. I'm your host, Emily G. Thompson, author of Unsolved Child Murders, Cults Uncovered, and co-author of Unsolved Murders, True Crime Cases Uncovered. Join me weekly as I uncover some of the world's most heinous murders. Cannibalism is arguably one of the most taboo crimes of all. Although most societies connect cannibalism with ancient Amazonian tribes or even rumours of devil-worshipping rituals, fantasies of cannibalism are not entirely uncommon among killers, even more so if their motive for murder was sexual or sadistic. In Purcell, Oklahoma, in 2006, a little girl vanished and her disappearance would lead to one of the most heinous cases the world has ever seen. Jamie Rose Bolin was a 10-year-old girl living in Purcell, Oklahoma, with her father, Curtis Bolin, who worked as an auto mechanic. Jamie's mother, Jennifer, and Curtis had separated just a couple of years after Jamie was born and Jennifer worked as a truck driver in Oklahoma City. Curtis was a hands-on father and truly doted on Jamie. His entire life revolved around his daughter. According to Jennifer, Jamie had a very caring and considerate nature and for her age, she was extremely responsible. Due to her red hair and freckles, she often referred to her daughter as her little strawberry shortcake. While the family were no longer together, Jamie still frequently visited her mother in Oklahoma City. She was always excited to see her half-sisters who lived with Jennifer. Jamie also loved animals, Barbies and dolls. She had even hand-stitched a miniature pillow for her Barbies. She was known to be particularly inquisitive and polite. Jamie was always eager to make new friends and according to her classmates, She never had a mean thing to say about anybody. She was quite shy and always saw the good in others and loved everybody that she met. She's not mean, she's nice and plays around. She likes Barbies, recollected her friend, Sam. Jamie was quite a new resident of Purcell and had only lived there for around a year and she was always searching for new friends. She had met her best friend, Carissa Jacobs, at the beginning of the school year and they both attended Girl Scouts together. I feel like she's my sister. We'd sit at the tables and eat breakfast together, said Carissa. On the 13th of April, 2006, Jamie was at the library in Purcell. 
According to the manager of the library, everything seemed normal. Jamie was passing the time on the computers and the manager had speculated that she was either studying or doing her homework. However, when Jamie left the library at about 4pm, she was allegedly spotted by several witnesses climbing into a dark blue four-door Chevrolet Tahoe, which was driven by a man. Jamie never made it home. That evening, Curtis reported her missing and by 6pm, witnesses had come forward with the description of the car that Jamie was supposedly spotted climbing into. A massive search party ensued. 24 hours after Jamie vanished, an Amber Alert was issued. It described Jamie as 4 feet tall, 110 pounds, with red hair, blue eyes and freckles. When she vanished, she was wearing a pink shirt, blue jeans and white tennis shoes or flip-flops. It also described the man driving the car as being in his early 20s, very thin and clean-cut, with an earring in his left ear. The car had tinted windows and a large logo on the back window which read Fox. Investigators speculated that the logo may be some kind of reference to a racing team or a racing organisation of some sort. The letters KC were also on the large leather seats. Furthermore, investigators said that the license plate was from Texas and had the letter Z and the number 69, but unfortunately there wasn't a full description of the number. Investigators also announced that they believed that there may have been some kind of damage to the passenger side of the car and a spot of neon green paint. The Amber Alert for Jamie was just issued in the state of Oklahoma, despite the fact that the potential abductor had Texas license plates. Authorities in Oklahoma asked the state of Texas to release an Amber Alert as well, but according to officials, they wouldn't release an Amber Alert because the disappearance of Jamie did not meet their criteria for an Amber Alert. According to officials in Texas, they did not have a suspect name, only a partial license plate. They also said that there wasn't enough evidence that Jamie had been taken against her will. Early on in the disappearance, investigators suggested that Jamie may have been communicating with the man who supposedly picked her up over the internet via emails. However, they wouldn't elaborate any further. The FBI were called in to assist in the search and began their investigation by examining the computers at the library. In addition, computer technicians were called in as well as the Oklahoma Highway Patrol and investigators from three counties. The witness reports of Jamie climbing into a vehicle was disputed by one of Jamie's neighbours, who was adamant that she had seen Jamie cycling past on her bike at some point between 4 and 5 p.m., Working on this angle, investigators began questioning other neighbours as to whether they had seen Jamie that afternoon. There were several witnesses who said that they had seen Jamie with 26-year-old Kevin Ray Underwood, who lived in the apartment below Jamie and Curtis. Just the following day, the Amber Alert for Jamie was called off and rumours began to circulate that a suspect was already in custody. This, of course, was bleak news. The police chief briefly spoke to the media to say, The situation does not look good, but would not elaborate any further. It was noticed by many locals that there was a flurry of activity at Jamie's apartment complex. Police stormed the complex and crime scene tape could be seen. It was soon announced that Jamie's body had been discovered inside Kevin's apartment. 
While no cause of death had been released, Prosecutor Tim Kuykendall announced that Jamie had been murdered in what he described as one of the most heinous and atrocious crimes he had ever seen, adding that he would be filing first-degree murder charges against Kevin and seeking the death penalty. Overcome with grief and emotion, Curtis collapsed and had to be taken away to hospital where he was sedated. Jamie's aunt, Linda Childs, said, That guy took a life that had just begun. Her daddy is not going to walk her down the aisle. She's not going to have babies. She's not going to get married. I mean, it's over for her. A number of neighbours at the apartment complex said that Kevin mostly kept to himself, although he could often be spotted on the balcony watching children play. According to Daniel Downey, I always see him looking at the kids, so I thought he had kids. Yeah, like, we'd see her around, her and her friends, you know, they'd be riding bikes around and stuff. I mean, she got, looked like she got along with everybody. She was an energetic girl. I mean, you know, I never really seen Kevin Underwood. Like, when I was living here, like, you know, we lived here for like six months or six, eight months or something like that, and I've never really seen him. According to Rose, Jamie's grandmother, they had kept a vigil for Jamie inside and outside the apartment, and there was always human activity. She said that she believed that this was why Kevin hadn't removed Jamie's body from his apartment. Kevin had come to investigators' attention after a number of witnesses said that they saw him with Jamie on the day that she vanished, completely contradicting the eyewitness statements that they had seen Jamie climbing into a car. On Kevin's way home from work, he was stopped at a routine roadblock near the apartment complex by two Oklahoma Highway Patrol troopers and an FBI agent. He just wasn't acting right, said Oklahoma Highway Patrol Trooper Kira Phillippe. When they became suspicious of Kevin's peculiar behaviour, they decided to take him in for questioning. During questioning, their suspicions remained aroused, particularly when Kevin told them that when he last saw Jamie, she wasn't wearing the clothing that had been reported to the media. Instead, he said that she was wearing a blue strapless shirt and pink shorts. Following the interview, the officers drove Kevin home and once here, they asked him if they could come in and have a look around his apartment, to which he agreed. In the closet in his bedroom, they spotted a large plastic container sealed with duct tape. They asked Kevin what it contained. First of all, he claimed that it was filled with comics. However, when one of the officers went to open the plastic container, Kevin exclaimed, Go ahead and arrest me. She's in there. I hit her and chopped her up. Soon enough, details of Jamie's murder were revealed and they painted an even more disturbing picture than anybody could have ever imagined. Inside Kevin's apartment, investigators had discovered Jamie's body. She was naked and had been stuffed inside a large plastic tub along with towels that had been used to soak up her blood. She had deep saw marks to her neck and according to investigators, Kevin had planned on dismembering her and cannibalizing her. Jamie's autopsy had concluded that she died of blunt force trauma to the head and asphyxiation. It was deduced that she had died on the afternoon that she vanished. She had also sustained blunt force trauma to the back, right arm, right thigh, left thigh and left ankle. She also had red abrasions on her nose that were consistent with fingernail marks. The saw marks to Jamie's neck had happened after death 
and investigators believed that this was an attempt to begin dismembering Jamie's body. The grim descriptions of what had happened to Jamie came right from Kevin's mouth. After being taken in for questioning after Jamie's body was discovered, Kevin made a full confession. Listeners, I'd like to give a forewarning that this confession is exceptionally disturbing, but it played a large part in the later trial, so it's important to the episode. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Anyway, she came downstairs and was still, you know, she's like, oh, there's nothing, it's just hot, nothing good, like a good, you know, ice glass of ice milk. And uh, she, you know, kind of chatted for a minute and then asked to come inside and see my rat again. And she just sat there on the floor uh, looking at my rat. And uh, about the only TV I ever watch is cartoons, Cartoon Network and Nickelodeon and SpongeBob was on. And so she was kind of sitting there watching that and we were talking about the show a little. She was in my apartment probably a good 15 minutes. And uh, after she'd been in there a few minutes, you know, when she first came in, I was like, oh, that was my chance. But, you know, then I had to say, no, I can't do it. And I just kind of struggled with myself the whole time she was in there. And uh, it was a struggle between right and wrong. Uh, well, or kind of, yeah, both that and, you know, not wanting to get caught. But, but yeah, it was partly because, you know, uh, you know, I can't do this, I don't want to do it, but then, you know, yeah, I want to do this. And there was a little bit of fear, like, hey, if I do this, I might get caught. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, that was a large part of it, too, but, um, anyway, then I even had, a, I had all the stuff, I had all the stuff sitting there handy, uh, on that, uh, you know, entertainment center right by my door, I'd had, uh, you know, like, for the last month, I'd had a piece of duct tape stuff there, so, you know, I could just grab it, slide the tape over there now, and also the handcuffs sitting there on the shelf, so, you know, I could young men restrain them hopefully before they had the time to yell or anything and uh, uh also it had been just uh, two or three nights before that i you know suddenly thought of the uh and it was mainly something i had reserved for if i did grab an adult something to subdue him but i tried to find something heavy i could hopefully hit him on the head and knock him out with and the best thing i had was a uh, slightly heavy wooden cutting board in the kitchen so i had that sitting on the entertainment center at that time too and after she'd been in there a few minutes i kind of so it'd be ready so you'd have it access right there at you yes yeah, so just kind of like yank them in and whack them over the head but i hadn't planned on doing that if it was a kid because if it was a kid like i said i wanted to keep them conscious and make them watch porn uh but uh i even also kind of you know also was as they were watching the porn, you know, depending on how old they were, you know, like telling them what was going on. You're like, well, this is sex. You know, the guy does this and the woman does this. And, you know, this is called an orgasm. You know, kind of like teaching them. But, um, and hopefully they'd want to try it for themselves. Something like that. Uh, but anyway, then, uh, you know, so I kind of, once she got in there, I kind of was like, you know, you know, it was more of a, the, uh, you know, kind of regrets and fears, and I was like, yeah, I better just knock her out, you know, knock her out, and, you know, then restrain her while she's unconscious, you know, get her clothes off and everything while she's unconscious, and I'm not even going to bother with the porn, I'm just going to, you know, knock her out and rape her. Uh, so, uh, after she'd been there a few minutes, I kind of, you know, made my way around behind her, and was just kind of standing behind her, watching, you know, talking to her as we were watching the show, and kind of, you know, fighting with myself. I, I grabbed the, I, you know, 
reached out there once and grabbed the uh, cutting board. And, you know, you know, I put it down on the couch. I couldn't do it. And so for like five minutes, I just stood there, you know, going back and forth, picking it up, putting it back down, and saying, you know, and finally I was just, you know, look, either do it or tell her to get the hell out of the apartment, and, you know. And finally, I did it. Like, you know, wrapped over the head, it made a lot of noise. If there was anyone home, you know, I mean, apparently no one had been home in the apartment next to me or above me, or I would have been caught for sure, because it did knock her out. She started screaming. Kevin, how did you hold the board? I'm not clear to me how you did her. But it had to, you know, it was like a square, you know, like a little hole cut out, like a handle. Uh-huh. And I just held it by the handle and, like, whacked. With one hand, like a... Yeah, yeah, just, like, whacked her upside the side of the head. Where did you hit her on the head? Can you put it Can you put it on my head where you hit her? I was standing behind her, so yeah, it was about, probably about, probably about like that, something like that. Okay, right there, it's here. Yeah, maybe down farther on the side, but it's probably kind of the side top. Because I think, I think I did it with this hand. But, you know, it was probably this hand, because I'm right-handed, and that was my stronger hand, so yeah, it was probably this. Right you were behind her. Yeah, I was behind her, just whack. And she was where? Sitting in the floor. Like in front of the TV okay. and the rat cage. Okay. Just right up against the rat cage almost. I had to, you know, I had to kind of wait for her to get in a position. I didn't want her to like fall over on the rat cage. But, um, so I whacked her with that. And she, you know, she's like, ow, and started crying. And she's like, oh, God, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. My God, I'm sorry. And just saying I'm sorry over and over mostly. And I, so I whacked her again. And, she jumped up, and, you know, I, I couldn't believe it didn't knock her out. I hit her. You know, it's, it's all kind of a blur once it started happening, but I hit her, I think, three times, maybe four. But with all, each time with the same cutting board? Yeah. As hard as you could. Yeah, I mean, every time I got hard, it's just like, you know. She's not going down. Yeah, it's like, why isn't she unconscious yet? Because you think when she gets a bike, hit her more Because you see on TV. Yeah. Yeah, she, uh, like I said, she jumped, she was yelling, uh, God, I'm sorry, and, you know, you know, let me go, I won't tell. And, you know, I mean, after I hit her a couple times, I finally just had to, you know, jump up and grab her, and she was, I couldn't believe how strong she was, I barely held her down. Uh, I finally, I like to never got her down to the ground, I mean, I had, well, you know, how I, I didn't want to choke her, because like I said, I wanted the body to be pretty much perfect. Uh, so I didn't want to leave the you know, marks around her neck or anything, so I just, you know, crying my hand over her. Were you behind her? Or were you looking yeah. you on, did you ever on the ground? No, I was, uh, like I said, uh, she got up and was trying to run around, and I, you know, grabbed her from behind, was kind of hugging her with her mouth over her, her uh, hand over her mouth and nose. And eventually, you know, after she started getting weaker and stuff, and, I mean, we flopped around. I've got pretty bad carpet burns on my knees for me. I said, she put up a... Is that, is, is, and just for the, for me to understand, I see this is your right leg. You know, the, some of both of them, but this one's the worst. So, so you're wearing shorts. And, uh, yeah. And you're telling me this is from the incident with... Yeah. Okay. Or you were on... Yeah, from struggling with her on the ground. Because then, you know, once I, uh, you know, I finally got her down to the ground, finally got her, you know, I mean, we struggled it. It took me probably 15, 20 minutes to kill her. Kevin admitted to hitting Jamie over the head several times with a wooden cutting board and then placing his hands and duct tape over her mouth to suffocate her. He confessed that he had initially wanted to behead Jamie while she was still alive. Following Kevin's arrest, he had confessed 
that he began fantasizing about cannibalizing somebody around a year ago. Well, it started off as uh, cannibalism. Uh, you know, just the, uh, you know, I wanted to, you know, know what, what it tasted like. Just the thought of uh, eating, you know, someone, just, you know, was appealing to me. But then, uh, you know, it kept kind of evolving from there. Uh, I am, you know, essentially frustrated. I haven't had sex in four years. Uh, now, it wasn't specifically the girl in question or what? Uh, as I told the guy earlier, could really been anyone. I mean, age and it, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't necessarily, you know, pedophile thing either. I mean, age and even gender didn't even really matter to me. I just, uh, at first I just wanted to basically to uh, eat someone and then it turned into, while well, I'm at it, I'm going to, you know, uh, you know, get off, you know, have sex with them, you know. There had been other people that Kevin had considered making his victim, including a woman and a five-year-old boy. In his detailed confession, he described how he had fantasized about kidnapping a child and forcing them to watch pornography before things turned violent. Now, going back to um, the plan, you, uh, yeah, so, you had the handcuffs and the duct tape. Yeah, so what I was going to do is I was going to, uh, you know, like I said, yank him in there, strain him, and... If, if it was a kid, I was going to just make them sit there and watch some porn first. And then I was going to have sex with them. And then... So you were trying to make it, turn them all the porn and make it voluntary? I was, you know, kind of hoping that would happen, but I, you know, figured it probably wouldn't. So you think that you would have to do it by force? Yeah, most, most likely. And then, you know, the, uh, after the sex, it would turn kind of violent. I'd start a kind of torturing him a little, stuff like that. Ultimately, he settled his sights on Jamie. Well, I did kind of favor this girl a little. I'd seen her, and I was like, you know, I, I was kind of like, well, I'd really like her, but then as I saw her more and more, I, you know, I'd think, no, I can't hurt her. You know, she's nice, and I know her too well. And I had no idea she was 10. I, I would have sworn she was probably 12 or 15. Maybe she just for the record describe it before you continue on. Describe her? Yeah, her physical she was, uh, you know, had thin red hair, uh, glasses. She was a little chubby. I, you know, I had pretty much planned all along to probably get a kid, just mainly because they'd be easier to grab and easier to get rid of afterwards, smaller, and, you know, put up less of a fight. But there was a few, you know, girls my age, I'd be like, you know, well, she's really attractive. I wouldn't mind, you know, killing and eating her and having sex with her and all that. But, uh, did you find her attractive? Not really, no. She was kind of homely. Uh, but uh, that was part of me that, yeah, kind of found her attractive, but at the same time, not really. What, I don't, what, is, what did you mean by homely? Well, she, I don't know, she just had, like, she was almost bald. She had, like, really thin hair, really thin hair. And, what color was it? Uh, just a light red. Almost a blondish red. Uh, and, you know, she was a little chubby and... It was evident that this was not a spur of the moment crime or a crime of opportunity, but instead one that had been meticulously planned out and premeditated for months. According to the police chief, 
Regarding a potential motive, this appears to have been part of a plan to kidnap a person, rape them, torture them, kill them, cut off their head, drain the body of blood, rape the corpse, eat the corpse, then dispose of the organs and bones. During the search of Kevin's apartment, investigators had seized a number of items, including a decorative dagger, a hacksaw, duct tape, meat tenderizer, barbecue skewers, a duffel bag, a wooden cutting board, a computer, and a DVD about serial killers. They had also recovered a mug which belonged to Jamie, her eyeglasses, and her dismantled bicycle was found hidden underneath his bed. In a bedroom closet, alongside the box which contained Jamie's body, they found another box with sex toys, handcuffs, and a Barbie. A blood stain was discovered in the bathroom and another stain was found on a wall near the vanity closet in the bedroom. A wipe with a blood-like substance was also found in the kitchen trash. In the immediate aftermath of the arrest, people around the town were trying to figure out more about the man who had been arrested. Those who knew Kevin couldn't quite fathom that he had been arrested for such a grisly crime. Kevin had worked for seven years at a Carl's Jr. before quitting a year before the murder. According to Bill Verdon, his shift leader, Kevin was quiet and kept to himself, even describing him as boring. But he said that he was a great employee and trustworthy. In fact, Kevin had even been around Bill's children and drove his wife home on several occasions and never once had an inkling that something was amiss. His mother, Connie Underwood, lived across the street from her son and described him as a wonderful boy. Following his arrest, she said, This is something that I don't know where it came from. I would like to tell her family just how sorry we are. I feel so terrible. Soon enough, however, it would emerge that Kevin had kept an online blog, which gave an ominous insight into his mind. On his blog, Kevin frequently joked about cannibalism and discussed the effects of not taking his antidepressants. One post read, If you were a cannibal, what would you wear for dinner? He responded to his own question with, The skin of last night's main course. He additionally wrote about his fantasies, which he described as dangerously weird. He wrote, For example, my fantasies are just getting weirder and weirder. Dangerously weird. If people knew the kind of things I think about anymore, I'd probably be locked away. No probably about it, I know I would be. Kevin also wrote how all he wanted in life was to be able to live like a normal person and described himself as single, bored and lonely, but other than that, pretty happy. In a post dated the 4th of February 2006, Kevin wrote a blog post which read, Pretty much the only time I believe in God is when I blame him for something or when I'm really depressed. To cry and beg him to make me better, to make whatever is wrong in my brain go away so that I can live like a normal person. He wrote that he rarely left his apartment for long stretches other than to go to work at a local grocery store and to buy food. He wrote, I just sit here at the computer every minute of the day when I'm not at work. A week or so ago, I spent my day off sitting at the computer, barely moving from the chair, for 14 hours. According to Kevin, he had few friends and suffered from social anxiety and depression, which led him to avoiding social situations. In one post, he said, I love to cuddle, hug and kiss. That isn't to say I don't like sexual activity, though. 
I'm a very sexual being, though I haven't had a chance to explore that side of life. He admitted that he often watched porn and had visited strip clubs. On his Amazon wish list, he had added the book Meet It's Murder, New Edition, an illustrated guide to cannibalism culture. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Swanson Health has been producing quality vitamins and supplements, foods, health, home, and self-care products for over 50 years from the heart of America. I'm lucky enough that they've sponsored this episode of Morbidology. Swanson Health are the only company to offer the full spectrum of wellness products for mind, body, and home. They have a massive range of quality vitamins and supplements, as well as cruelty-free beauty items, including makeup, shampoos, and face washes. They also have eco-friendly home products, In fact, they carry over 20,000 wellness products at a great value, and all of their brand vitamins and supplements are crafted in the USA and made with unsurpassed purity and potency. My personal favourites have got to be their CBD full-spectrum soft gel tablets, which deliver 15 milligrams of CBD, their multivitamins with iron, which deliver 16 essential vitamins and minerals in one tablet. I've also tried a variety of face washes and moisturizers that leave my skin feeling fresh. So if you'd like to try any of Swanson Health's great products for yourself, use the promo code MORBID20 for 20% off at swanson.com. As a true crime writer and podcaster, sometimes after researching and writing, I need a palate cleanser. My personal go-to game is Best Fiends, the mobile puzzle game, and I'm lucky enough that they've sponsored this episode of Morbidology. As you make your way through the game, you collect a bunch of cute little monsters that you can evolve as you progress through the game. I'm already on level 198 and can genuinely get so distracted with this amazing game. What's cool about the game as well is that you truly need to use your brain and evolve your strategy so you have a better chance of beating your enemy in the game the slugs. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends for free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. The question still remained as to how Jamie ended up inside Kevin's apartment. Investigators soon announced that the reported sighting of Jamie climbing into the Chevrolet Tahoe was not accurate. Kevin had known Jamie and her family. On occasion, Jamie had voluntarily gone into Kevin's apartment to play with his pet rat. Kevin would put his rat on his shoulder and then allow Jamie to pet him. In fact, just the night before Jamie's murder, Kevin had offered Jamie to use his mobile phone to order herself a pizza. 
While inside, she had said that if her father knew that she was in a stranger's apartment, she would be in big trouble. Following his arrest, Kevin had confessed to exactly what happened. He described how he had lured Jamie into his apartment using his pet rat. Once inside the apartment, Jamie and Kevin watched SpongeBob SquarePants. When the attack began, Jamie pleaded with Kevin. She asked him to let her go and kept repeating, I'm sorry, and telling him that she would not tell on him. When investigators told Jamie's family what she had endured in her last moments on Earth, Curtis vomited. Her uncle, Mark Childs, had to walk out of the room before later stating, It gives you nightmares. I had to get up and walk out of that room. I couldn't deal with it. The following day, Kevin appeared in court to be arraigned on first-degree murder charges. He entered a not-guilty plea. His court-appointed attorneys requested a gag order and complained that officials had made inflammatory, prejudicial and conclusory statements to the media and alleged that these statements had fueled widespread interest in the case. As the arraignment was underway, a man in the hall outside the courtroom yelled, Let's bring him out! Let's bring him out! Baby, kill Prosecutor Tim Kukendall said that he would be seeking the death penalty. The murder of Jamie Rose Bolin completely shocked the nation. The murder of any child is heinous, but for a child to die in such a brutal manner was exceptionally heartbreaking and downright disturbing. The last moments of Jamie's life must have been filled with absolute terror. And what makes this case all the more poignant is that Jamie's family were probably just a couple of feet away. For Jamie to die so close to home just lamented this tragedy. The space outside of the apartment complex became a makeshift memorial with mourners leaving Easter lily flowers, teddy bears and trinkets to commemorate the short life of Jamie. At Easter service at the Mission Assembly of God Church, the Reverend said that everybody was struggling to understand how something so evil could happen so close to home. Reverend Dwayne Elmore said, it's very painful, and I think there are a lot of people, teachers and everybody, we all have the question, what could we have done? You know, did I do enough? And that's tough. Following the arraignment, Curtis spoke to the media and said that Jamie was now in heaven. She's probably up there playing checkers with her grandpa, he said, referring to his father, James Bolin, for whom Jamie was named. He and Jennifer had the heartbreaking task of sorting through photographs of Jamie to use in her memorial service, which was fast approaching. Jennifer had been driving her rig through Arizona when Curtis called and informed her that Jamie had vanished. At that point, I think I just blacked out, she said. Jennifer stopped on the Interstate 40 hard shoulder and screamed at the top of her lungs before heading back to Oklahoma. Curtis also took the time to thank everybody who had assisted in the search for Jamie and who had offered him support and a shoulder to cry on. He also thanked the numerous businesses throughout town who had contributed money towards a memorial fund established in Jamie's name at the Bank of Oklahoma. Donations had also poured in to go towards Jamie's funeral. Curtis had said that he wanted the Underwood family to know that he did not place any of the blame on them. 
Speaking to the Oklahoma newspaper, he said, They didn't do this. I would hate for them to feel responsible. On the 19th of April, around 1,000 people packed into the Purcell High School gymnasium to commemorate the life of Jamie. Maybe Heaven needed another rose to add to its bouquet. It only took her 10 years to earn her wings, said Pastor Dwayne Elmore. During the service, a video depicted Jamie's short life in the form of photographs and videos. Members of her Girl Scouts troop wept as a video of them all clowning around together flashed up on the screen. At the front of the gymnasium sat a white casket bearing Jamie's body with a photograph of her smiling and a bouquet of flowers on top. A number of police officers who had worked on the case were in attendance. The pastor also said that somehow... God will use Jamie's death as a blessing. How, he questioned. We will love our children more and treasure them more as the gifts that they are. We can love each other in the community more. We can tear down the walls that separate us and build up one another with our words and our deeds, he said. Pastor Dwayne Elmore addressed Jamie's family and told them that the community of Purcell would be there to support them through this unimaginable time. Long after the cameras are gone and the headlines change, there will still be people in Purcell who love you, he said. Following the service, the casket was placed in a white hearse for the 60-mile trip to Guthrie, where Jamie was buried at Summit View Cemetery. Her grave has a pink granite headstone engraved with a large heart, a small rose and an angel. In the wake of the murder, many felt as though Kevin had to be mentally ill to commit such a gruesome crime. Dr. Arthur Rossiu, a psychiatrist, said that Kevin had been on medication for depression, anxiety, panic disorder, post-traumatic stress syndrome, social phobia and excessive compulsive disorder. However, he said that the medications would not have contributed to any violent behaviour. John Call, a forensic psychologist, said, You don't have to be mentally ill to commit a sexual homicide. In fact, being mentally ill doesn't put you at risk of committing a sexual homicide. In early May, Curtis moved out of the apartment that he and Jamie had lived in, which was one floor above the apartment where Jamie was murdered. It was only the second time that Curtis had been to the apartment since Jamie's death. He took all of Jamie's cherished items to a relative's house in Guthrie where he would be temporarily staying before finding his own place. Understandably, the memories inside the apartment were far too raw for Curtis to continue living there, even more so because Jamie died just a few feet away. As a matter of fact, almost everybody who lived in the apartment complex would move out in the aftermath of the murder. I mean, this place is going to be kind of notorious for what happened, but um, people don't talk about it much. And it seems like every person I've talked to today has just moved in recently. Yeah, most people moved out after it happened, I believe. Meanwhile, a preliminary hearing was scheduled for the 22nd of August. FBI agent Craig Overby was the first witness to testify during the preliminary hearing. He described how Kevin appeared to be calm as they searched his apartment until they spotted the plastic tub inside his closet. He told the officers that the plastic tub was sealed with duct tape to prevent moisture from damaging the comic books inside. Overby described how when he opened the corner of the tub, he saw a blue strapless shirt 
which is what Kevin had earlier described as what Jamie was wearing on the day she vanished. Kevin then said, go ahead and arrest me. I hit her and chopped her up. Moments later, Kevin began to hyperventilate before saying to Overby, I'm going to burn in hell. The judge determined that there was enough evidence to send Kevin to trial and it was scheduled for the 7th of May. Then in December, the trial was pushed back to the 1st of June. Kevin's defence team also told Judge Candace Blalock that they were planning to file a motion to move the trial out of the county due to the publicity it had garnered. Outside of court, Assistant District Attorney Rick Sitzman said that he would be objecting to the motion, stating that he believed that unbiased jurors could be found within the county and that the case had received national attention, meaning that even if they did move to another county, it probably wouldn't matter. In January, Kevin's defence team filed the motion seeking to have the trial moved. The defence team had commissioned a poll which indicated that more than three in four McLean County residents believed that Kevin killed Jamie. The judge ultimately ruled that the trial could be moved. Kevin would now be tried in Norman, which was around 20 miles north of Purcell. The date of the trial was also pushed back until the 13th of August. As preparations for the trial were underway, the one-year anniversary of Jamie's murder came around. Tania Lieb, Curtis's sister, said, It's been tough for the whole family, especially with the anniversary date coming up. Curtis is doing the best he can. He really hopes that people don't forget what happened. Curtis said that he initially believed that it would be physically and emotionally impossible to live without Jamie. However, he said that he eventually realised that Jamie would want her father to continue with his life. Speaking with the Associated Press, Curtis said, I feel kind of lost. I mean, it's kind of hard going from having her there every night to not. I know she'd want me to go on. She was just starting to come into her own. She was becoming her own person. In June, new court documents filed by prosecutors alleged that Kevin had discussed cannibalism and cooking organs and had told a former co-worker, I'm going to snap and kill someone. These claims about Kevin were part of a witness summary report filed by prosecutors. According to the report, Kevin had spoken to a childhood friend about cannibalism and was taking medication to control his anxiety in 2005 and 2006. The report also said that Kevin had spoken to a co-worker about cooking organs and had been nicknamed Zombie Kevin by his co-workers. The report said that co-workers of Kevin would be testifying that they found him to be creepy and that he had an interest in serial killers and made sick jokes. There was also evidence in the report that Kevin had messaged a friend online and told them that he wanted to write a children's book that included anal sex. Other potential witnesses in the report included Kevin's mother and father. Due to the gag order, however, very little information about the case or the upcoming trial, other than what was reported early on, had been released in the media. Just the following month, the trial was postponed after Kevin's lead defence attorney stepped down. Defence attorney Silius Lyman would be replaced by L. Wayne Woodyard. The trial was rescheduled for the 19th of February 2008. In September, Judge Candace Blalock ordered sealed court documents that she said contained sensational factual allegations. This latest order severely restricted access the public will have to inspect the case. According to Joey Sennett, 
an Oklahoma State University professor that studies media law, the ruling was dangerous because sensationalism is a vague term. Quite a lot of people felt the same as the professor because the court documents contained facts of the case, albeit gruesome and disturbing. What is the judge using to define sensational? And why would sensational and non-sensational be treated differently if they are simply facts of the case, he questioned. Adding that justice is protected when court operates in the open. The murder trial began on the 25th of February 2008. Extra security was placed around the courthouse and Kevin was taken in and out of court using a different route. During opening statements, District Attorney Greg Mashburn told the jury that when Kevin lured Jamie to his apartment, he had already devised a plot to rape and torture her before consuming her flesh. He described how Kevin hit Jamie over the head with a cutting board and suffocated her while she fought for her life. His elaborate plans included severing Jamie's neck to keep as a trophy, described D.A. Mashburn. He even began to fantasise about eating people. He didn't care who the victim was, said the district attorney. He went on to detail how Kevin had attempted to behead Jamie after death, but became tired during the process. As Jamie's body lay draped over the bathtub, Kevin spoke online with a friend. Later, Kevin wrapped Jamie's body up in plastic and stuffed her inside the plastic tub, which he sealed with duct tape. According to the prosecution, Kevin had committed not the worst of crimes, but the worst of the worst of crimes. He described Kevin as a man who spent a lot of time on the internet chatting with people or feeding his pornography habit. Then when pornography was not enough, Kevin began a plot to abduct and torture someone. He went on to describe how Kevin had even practiced torture on a Barbie doll, which was found in his bedroom with his eyes poked out and pierced with skewers. During his opening statements, Kevin's defence attorney, Matthew Hare, did not dispute the prosecution's allegations that Kevin had killed Jamie. He said that he had very little doubt that Kevin would be convicted of first-degree murder. He described his client as a very troubled and reclusive young man and said that he would be trying to persuade jurors to spare his life. He said to the jury, It's not a who's on it, it's a what-is-it case. What happened and why did it happen? He explained how after all of the evidence was presented during trial and after the state had met its burden of proof, he expected that he would be able to show the jury why they should spare the life of Kevin. Curtis was one of the first witnesses to testify. He took to the stand to tell the courtroom that he had warned Jamie about stranger danger. After Jamie told Curtis that she had met Kevin and knew that he had a pet rat, Curtis had warned her, I told her you can't be trusting people and do not go into anyone's apartment. Assistant District Attorney Susan Caswell asked Curtis if he believed that Jimmy understood the warning, to which he replied, I thought that she did, as his voice trembled. Curtis took the jury through that fateful afternoon. He described how he had become nervous when he came home from work to find that Jimmy wasn't in the apartment. He said that he and the apartment manager, Tim Bayer, began going door to door, asking neighbours if they had seen Jamie. Tim testified that he was the one to knock on Kevin's door. At first, nobody answered. 
However, moments later, Kevin appeared, looking disheveled, as if he had just been sleeping. He was in the process of putting on his shirt as he opened the front door. Kevin told him that he saw Jamie riding her bicycle, heading towards the library, adding that he would help look for her, but he was tired and had work the following day. Photographs of the plastic tub, including one where Jamie's head could be seen wrapped in plastic, were shown to jurors. Andrew Moreland, an OSBI forensic biologist, testified that blood found inside the plastic tub and on the plastic bags that were wrapped around Jamie matched her blood. He testified that no blood was discovered on the metal skewers, the wooden cutting board, or a decorative knife that was found inside the apartment. Additionally, Kevin's semen was found on Jamie's underwear. Kevin's videotaped confession was played out during court, during which he spoke matter-of-factly about his plan to kill, rape and eat Jamie. Kevin's family, who had been in court for all of the proceedings, were not present as the confession was played out. At the beginning of the tape, Kevin said that he felt nauseated before describing his grisly plan. As he described the gruesome details, he appeared more animated and excited. He described how he had hatched the plan after watching cannibalistic pornography online and fantasizing about cannibalism. He said that his fantasies may have corresponded to his taking of the antidepressant medication Lexapro. He said that up until recently, he would never have thought of killing somebody, let alone torturing them and cannibalizing them. It's been my experience that a lot of people who like or think about those kind of things maybe experiment with animals. Have you ever experimented with animals? No, I told the guy earlier, in fact, you know, this, like I said, this is just entirely against my nature. And if, you know, I told him I'm not really religious, but what beliefs I do have would be uh, pretty much best described as Buddhist. I, I hated, I, I didn't even like stepping on bugs. You know, I didn't believe in violence or anything until this happened. During the interview, Kevin confessed that he'd been planning the crime for around a month, but said that he didn't really have anybody in particular in mind. He said that he had planned all along for a child to be his victim, stating that they would be easier to grab and easier to get rid of afterwards. Smaller, and you know, put up less of a fight, he said. If you recall back to earlier on in today's episode, I told you that a number of neighbours had witnessed Kevin staring at children as they played in the neighbourhood. While in his interview with police, Kevin had told them that he often stood outside watching the children and trying to pick one as his victim. Kevin said that Jamie was extremely trusting and had been in his apartment a couple of times to see his pet rat. He told the officers during the interview that they were watching cartoons for around 15 minutes as he tried to decide whether to go through with his plans. Eventually, he picked up the wooden cutting board and hit Jamie over the head. He relayed how he had to hit Jamie several times while she pleaded with him to let her go, saying that she was sorry. According to Kevin, Jamie's last words haunted him. That's something that's you know, haunted me ever since it happened. She's uh, so willing, I'm sorry. Which you know, I'm just like, you know, what is she sorry for? She didn't do anything wrong. It's me, you know, I'm the one that should be sorry. When Jamie didn't die, Kevin described how he covered her nose and mouth with his hands until she stopped breathing. He sexually assaulted her and then tried to decapitate her. He told the officers that he regretted his actions almost as soon as he started, 
but said that he was in over his head. Like I said, you know, as soon as I hit her, you know, I wish I hadn't started this, but, you know, as soon as I hit her the first time, I was like, well, now it's too late. I need to stop now. Yeah. Kevin, are you okay? Yeah, I'm just nauseous again. Exhausted. Take a break for a second. Yeah, I guess. At the end of the confession, Kevin vomited repeatedly. The defense presented no evidence or witnesses. During closing statements, D.A. Mashburn predicted that it would take jurors longer to pick a foreman than it would to determine Kevin's guilt. It was a pretty open and closed case, in the sense that there was an abundance of physical evidence as well as a detailed confession. In his closing statement, defense Hare once again did not dispute Kevin's guilt, referring to him as a lonely, troubled and reclusive man. Afterwards, the jury were sent off to deliberate. It took them just minutes to reach a guilty verdict. As the verdict was read out, Kevin showed no emotion. Jamie's family members patted each other and shook hands. Judge Candace Blalock told the jurors to return to court on Monday where the penalty phase would begin. Prosecutors would be seeking the death penalty while Kevin's defence would make a desperate bid to save his life. Outside of court, Jamie's grandmother, Rose, said that she was initially against the death penalty in the case, but the trial had changed her mind. I was for mercy. And then when I found out what he really did to her, that not only did he plan it, he stalked her, he enticed her into being his friend, and everything else. And I'm like, he knew what he was doing. He showed her no mercy. During the sentencing phase, which followed on Monday, Kevin's defense team portrayed their client as a mentally ill man out of touch with reality. Defense attorney Wayne Woodyard said that Kevin had lived an unremarkable life that had spiraled out of control because of mental illness. He said that experts would testify that Kevin had been suffering from bipolar disorder, social anxiety, panic attacks and numerous deviant sexual disorders. Prosecutor Susan Caswell told the jury that Kevin qualified for the death penalty because he posed a continuing threat to society and because the murder of Jamie was especially heinous and cruel. Furthermore, she said that Kevin had shown no remorse. Following opening statements, the state called six witnesses, including Jamie's parents. Both Jennifer and Curtis said that they wanted Kevin to receive the death penalty. When Jennifer was asked what she would miss about her daughter, she replied, Everything. I find it hard to pay attention and I drift off thinking about things we used to do and the plans we had. Curtis described how when he first heard of what had happened to Jamie, he needed to be sedated. I don't remember much of the next few days except the nightmares. Like the whole world just came down on me. I was and still am completely lost without her. There are times... I'm just not sure what I'm going to do, said Curtis. Elvira Griffin, a hairdresser who had cut Kevin's hair just days before Jamie's murder, said that he had randomly asked her how to cook organs, while Michael Horner, who had worked with Kevin, said that on one occasion, when a customer had angered him, he mumbled, I wonder what she tastes like. Dee Cordy, an OSB computer analyst, testified that a lot of porn had been discovered on Kevin's computer, and inside his porn folder, he found autopsy photographs. After the attorneys had rested their case, the defence presented theirs and called eight witnesses. 
Christopher Lonsdale, who was Kevin's best friend, testified that Kevin had been bullied in school. He said he would be like a sponge, just sit there absorbing the bullying. It was just his nature not to fight back. David McDade, another friend of Kevin, testified about the bullying in school. Kevin's parents also testified about their son's behaviour growing up. His father, Larry, told jurors that he was hard on his son growing up, but he loved him more than anything. I didn't tell him enough, said Larry, as he choked back tears. His mother, Connie, said that Kevin was a normal child who started to become socially withdrawn after beginning school in Purcell, where he was bullied. She said, He was a very loving child, especially when he was younger. The older he got, the less affectionate he got. He didn't really like to be hugged or touched at all. His aunt, Gail Colburn, testified that Kevin's social awkwardness began at a young age. As he grew older, he confided in Gail that he was depressed, isolated and feeling very alone. Dr. Martin Kafka, a clinical associate at Harvard Medical School, said that Kevin suffered from a socially isolating personality disorder, a bipolar disorder and several sexual disorders, which included pedophilia. Under cross-examination, Dr. Kafka admitted that if Kevin were released, he would be a threat to society. Dr. Antoinette McGarrigan said she believed that Kevin would be a minimal threat for continued violence, either in prison or in society. Under cross-examination, however, she admitted that her conclusion had been reached solely on statistical analysis of Kevin's answers, and she did not take into consideration his sexual disorders. She also admitted that some test results showed that Kevin may have been intentionally exaggerating his symptoms to get a lesser punishment. Dr. Robert Premke, a professor of psychiatry at Fairleigh Dickinson University, told the jury that Kevin had deviant sexual interests but was not insane and showed no signs of psychosis. During closing arguments, D.A. Mashburn recounted the final moments of Jamie's life, struggling for air as Kevin suffocated her. There are cases for life without parole and for the possibility of parole. This just isn't it. He should forfeit his life because this was so bad, he told the jury. Defence Woodyard asked for mercy on Kevin's behalf, stating to the jury that Kevin had been overcome by several psychiatric disorders. You have other options to punish Kevin Underwood and protect society other than sentencing him to death, he said. After eight hours of deliberation, the jury recommended that Kevin Ray Underwood be sentenced to death for the murder of Jamie Rose Bolin. Once again, Kevin showed no semblance of emotion as the verdict was read out. He was scheduled to be formally sentenced and then handcuffed and led from the courtroom. Then on the 3rd of April, Kevin was formally sentenced. He did not speak when the judge gave him the opportunity. The only time he spoke was to confirm that he understood the sentence. Outside of court, the district attorney and Jamie's family spoke with the media about the verdict and shared their fond memories of Jamie. Greg, did you ever consider life without parole to avoid a trial as part of a plea deal? Absolutely not. Um, that, just like I told the jury, there are cases for life imprisonment with parole. There are cases for life without parole. And this was not the case for either of those two options. The only just verdict, just like I told the jury, was death. And, and I, would not, uh, I would not do that in this case. 
it's just a tough process for all the parties to have endured through the whole thing. Um, we do feel sadness for his family, but again, he's the one that victimized Jamie. He's also the one that has victimized his own family. Um, and although the ending of Kevin Underwood um, is not going to bring peace to everybody's life, it's, it's definitely going to bring justice for Jamie. I've never had any trouble remembering the fun things. I, that's, the, that's the best part. That's what I, that's what kept us going is remembering those times. And that's the only thing that kept us together. I have one time that I really always go back to. And Curtis is sleeping on the couch and he has his shirt off and she's on top of his back and all she has on is a diaper and they're both facing the same way and she's right on top of his back just sound asleep and it's just like, you know, daddy and daughter right there just sleeping. That's, what, I, that's really, what I remember. That's what we really hope to get back to is just remembering the good times and put the bad times behind us. Like it's, you know, it'll never be over for us, but at least maybe we can get some closure now. In 2016, Kevin was back in the media once again. He argued that receiving the death penalty was an unconstitutional, cruel and unusual punishment because he was severely mentally ill. According to Kevin's new attorneys, Kevin had been re-diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome. However, Judge Timothy Degussi rejected his argument stating that his claim had no basis in precedent. Kevin remains on death row. We take no pleasure in, what well, you know, putting somebody to death, but this is the only just punishment for a crime like this. And, you know, it's just all we can do is just now move on and try to go on with our lives and, like I say, try to remember the good times. We don't hold the end with family responsible for anything. They're just as much a victim as we are. The only one that did anything wrong was Kevin, and he did that on his own accord. And, you know, I don't hold none of them responsible for nothing. Uh, each man makes his own decision in this world. We've all had hard lives, you know, and not all of us go out and do things like that. The case of Jamie Rose Bolin is arguably one of the most disturbing cases I have ever covered, both in my books and on my podcast. The details that emerged during trial were so horrific that they brought tears to even the most seasoned homicide detectives. There is a thin line between sensationalism and reporting facts, even more so when the facts of the case are so graphic and defy understanding. The tragic thought that Jamie's family could have been sitting just mere feet away when she was murdered is one that I don't doubt will haunt them for the rest of their lives. Well, guys, that is it for this episode of Morbidology. As always, thank you so much for listening. I'd like to say a massive thank you to my new Patreon supporter, Sandy Yazzie. I am eternally grateful for your support. If you'd like to support this one-woman show in return for exclusive episodes of Morbidology Plus, early release episodes, ad-free episodes, and of course my undying love, then please check out Morbidology on Patreon or Himalaya Plus. The new exclusive episode that I posted last week is on the Sarah Ludeman and Rachel Wade case. The links are in the show notes. Can I also ask that if you enjoy Morbidology, please consider voting for me for the Listener's Choice Award at the British Podcast Awards. 
I've included the link in the show notes and it's as easy as just typing Morbidology in the search bar. If not, then please consider voting for any indie podcast. There's thousands of us out there and it would be amazing for an indie podcast to win. Big thank you to everybody who has listened to an episode, commented on an episode, shared an episode. All of your support is extremely appreciated. Also, make sure you visit us at morbidology.com for more information about this episode and to read our true crime articles. Until next time, take care of yourselves, stay safe and have an amazing week.